0: One of the things I'm very passionate about doing is doing research with this community and other communities to try to bridge the gap between the patient knowledge base and the traditional healthcare system knowledge base, because we each have things we can learn from each other, but traditionally, healthcare is push things to patients, but not take things back. And so I really want to encourage that two-way communication and that facilitation of community based knowledge, patient based knowledge, back to the healthcare system. Because I think without it, then in the future, patients are harmed if they don't luck into being in the right community and having seen that knowledge for themselves and relying on the healthcare system that again, might be missing an entire piece of the puzzle.
1: Welcome to Design Lab, I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dana Lewis. After building her own DIY artificial pancreas, Dana helped found the open source artificial pancreas movement known as OpenAPS. She's making safe and effective artificial pancreas technology available for people with diabetes around the world. She's also an author. She wrote the book, Automated Insulin Delivery, How Artificial Pancreas Closed-Loop Systems Can Aid You in Living with Diabetes. And she did this to help people understand automated insulin delivery systems. She also wrote a series of children's book entitled, Understanding Automated Insulin Delivery, a basic book for kids, family, and friends of people living with diabetes. In addition to writing books, Dana is also a researcher. She studies diabetes-related data science and open-source artificial pancreas system projects. You, as a listener, can support Design Lab. It's so simple to do. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment, and tell others about your favorite episodes. And we love it when we hear from you, reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram or drop me a line at bonn at I talk with Dana about why she designed an artificial pancreas, why patients are experts and how we can reduce stigma among people living with chronic diseases. Here's my conversation with Dana Lewis. Dana Lewis, welcome to Design Lab. So excited to have you on the show. Where are you currently at right now?
0: Thanks for having me. I'm based out of the Seattle, Washington area.
1: Love Seattle. I haven't been there since before the pandemic and dying to get back.
0: Yeah, we are in an area where we have a lot of trails and parks that have been perfect for being able to get outside every day during the pandemic. So we are very pleased and very lucky with the location that even with the rain that people know Seattle has, getting outside is still worth it.
1: Amazing. My pandemic hobby that I picked up is mountain biking. So I know that Seattle has some amazing mountain biking trails. So I totally want to check them
0: out. Yeah. Our biking network is great. Whether you're talking about mountain biking, traditional biking, it's really great.
1: Cool. Cool. I want to jump right in to after you had built your own DIY artificial pancreas, you you got to tell us what that is. You helped found the open source artificial pancreas movement known as Open APS. Is that correct? That's right. Oh, yeah. So tell us what is a DIY artificial pancreas and what is this movement?
0: So I have been living with type 1 diabetes for almost 19 years. And so as a person with diabetes, I have to check or test my blood sugar on a regular basis and I have to get insulin throughout the day, every day for the rest of my life. And I have had different tools to help make that easier going from finger stick blood glucose testing to a continuous glucose monitor that's now more common and also from injections to an insulin pump. But most people don't realize that historically those two devices don't talk to each other. And so the person with diabetes has to do a lot of mental math and mental figuring out of what your blood sugar is, what it might be in the future, and how much insulin has been dosed. So what a artificial pancreas or automated insulin delivery system is an algorithm that sits between the pump and the CGM to read data, decide what to do, and send commands back to the insulin pump to keep the insulin from causing a low or resulting in a high. And so a do-it-yourself version is what I built because there was no commercial version available back in 2014.
1: Now, you don't really have a technical or engineering background, is that correct?
0: I come from a communications background, although I worked in healthcare And my exposure to building this was my first exposure to what I now know as open source, where people freely share ideas and information that can be language-based instruction, that can be code. So I learned as I went what I needed to learn technically in order to do this. And for people without a technical or engineering background, it maybe sounds intimidating, but it's like learning anything new, whether it's mountain biking or playing the guitar. There's Languages and things that you learn to achieve a goal that you have. And in my case, with the knowledge of diabetes, the programming part was the easy part. And that's something that you could ask for help with. But the design of the system in terms of what rules do you give it about when it should increase or decrease insulin, that was the harder part. But again, because I had been living with diabetes for over a decade at that point, I had that algorithm in my head, operationalized it every single day. And it was, in fact, teaching my boyfriend and now husband those rules to how you respond to different situations that made us realize it would be easy to teach a computer to do the same thing. And so that's actually how we decided to build the system was recognizing that a computer, we could teach it to run those rules and it would do a better job because it would respond in real time compared to the human.
1: So you basically taught yourself coding language in order to do this because I saw early pictures of the artificial pancreas, and use a Raspberry Pi, is that correct? Which is a mini computer to ha- have the insulin pump talk to the continuous glucose monitor, and vice versa. Is that correct?
0: That's right. And so I learned about Raspberry Pis and Intel Edison and other mini computers. I've learned a little bits programming languages. But the beautiful thing about open source and doing open source in healthcare is there's a lot of people with technical experience that know the ins and out of the Raspberry Pi or Python or Bash scripts. And so even if they don't understand diabetes or they don't understand the entire design of the system, if you run into a technical problem with a language or a piece of hardware, there's an entire community of people out there who have that expertise that you could tap into and ask for help. And that's one of the things I love about open source and why I want to encourage more open source in healthcare is, you know, we were lucky in diabetes that we had existing commercial devices of the pump in the CGM that we could add on to. So we were building on top of the existing system. But there's so many other places in healthcare where you can take that same concept of leveraging technical expertise and real lived expertise of people and add open-source hardware, open-source software, open-source data analysis, and come out with really great outcomes.
1: Do you get a little frustrated by healthcare because people, because healthcare is such a black box and it's a closed black box and only certain people have the keys to open that black box? And did you get a little pushback from what you were doing back then, creating this DIY artificial pancreas?
0: So that's an interesting analogy to use to describe healthcare because one of the analogies people use to distinguish between open source automated insulin delivery systems and the commercial ones is that with open source, you can read every line of code and with commercial systems, it is a black box and you rely on the companies to tell you as much as they're willing to tell you about how it works and how you interact with it. And coming from being somebody who worked professionally in healthcare, albeit from a a communications background, I didn't. Feel so much like healthcare was a black box. Like I had the benefit of having been a patient in the system, as well as working in the system, but not from a healthcare provider standpoint. The thing that made me frustrated is when you look at translating from in of one. no true DIY, I built it for myself, and then we made it open source so others can build it. At the end of the day, every single person who chose to use it was examining the code, examining the instructions, deciding if they wanted to do that for them. And individually, you have every right to do so. And I think that's really important to recognize that patients have choices about what they do and how they decide to treat or manage their disease or situation. And the thing that frustrates me about healthcare is sometimes there's a little bit where a lot of paternalism, in the sense that people hear something that they haven't learned about yet. And the gut reaction is to say, you can't or shouldn't be doing that without taking the time to learn what it is that we're even talking about. And this is not just true of automated insulin delivery, but many other things and diabetes and other diseases where patients are the experts because we live 24 seven, 365 with these conditions. And so we have expertise that the healthcare system hasn't developed or hasn't taken the time to learn about. And so as we've moved on over the years, it's now been obviously more than seven years since I did this. One of the things I'm very passionate about doing is doing research with this community and other communities to try to bridge the gap between the patient knowledge base and the traditional healthcare system knowledge base, because we each have things we can learn from each other. But traditionally, healthcare is push things to patients, but not take things back. And so I really want to encourage that two-way communication and that facilitation of community-based knowledge, patient-based knowledge, back to the healthcare system. Because I think without it, then in the future, patients are harmed if they don't luck into being in the right community and having seen that knowledge for themselves and relying on the healthcare system that, again, might be missing an entire piece of the puzzle.
1: There's so much there. Yes, we're totally paternalistic in medicine. It's totally got to change. And I love the fact that you do research. In fact, that was one of the most surprising things when I was doing my research on you is that you probably have enough publications to be an associate professor at a medical school, like seriously, but you're not affiliated with the academic institution is that correct that's correct and why how do you do this and why do you do this
0: so the first publication came out because we had been told kind of anecdotally on social media when people heard about what i was doing that's nice but that's in of one it's diy how do you know it works for anybody else and we said we don't other people are choosing to evaluate it for themselves and collectively through the community. We heard more people were doing that. And still, the question was like, well, how would you know? Well, let's do some science on it. Let's gather data from the community. So, we actually submitted a poster to the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions and were accepted for a poster presentation. And so, just like any other researcher, we got to present our data and say, okay, here's survey data from the first 40 users. Here are their self reported outcomes in terms of glycemic outcomes, but also quality of life. And from there, we were invited to submit a publication with, you know, a letter to the editor summarizing our data and everything, which was an amazing opportunity because it really helped me realize it wasn't that hard to publish research, even with peer review and all the processes that go along with that. And so that was a great learning for me to use a really small set of data, a really small publication, starting with a letter to the editor. But it made me realize it was possible even as a quote unquote just a patient. Not, were, you know,
1: were people su- surprised? Were they thinking you're affiliate? You're a clinician or, or a researcher, and when they find out that you're you a clinician or researcher and that you're publishing,
0: I don't think people ever assume I am. I will say though that the journal systems and the conference submission systems everything assumes that you're a clinician, a researcher. Every time I get a peer review request, it's, "Hey, Dr. Lewis, can you peer review this?" And I'm like. Not a PhD, not an MD, not anything, not at an institution. But because of that experience, once you publish once, it's a lot easier to publish additional research and see the opportunities to disseminate research back. And you publish in
1: some pretty well-known journals. These are not lower tier journals. They're like some of the best journals in endocrinology and diabetes.
0: It's kind of a mix, but it's been really nice that the diabetes community scientifically has been open and receptive to wanting to learn from the patient community. If we kind of, you know, if there's a line, right, like cross over the line and be on their side in terms of showing up in the publications, in the journals, at the conferences. And what I had seen is I had been doing for years this type of research and dissemination in the patient community and through social media and that reached some healthcare providers but not enough and so what i really saw is doing the publications the conference presentations the posters taking the research to that side of things and that side of the healthcare system really helped speed up the transmission of knowledge and so that's it was easy enough to do and then i just kept doing it
1: that is amazing it's almost like you could use the disease model of diabetes the work that you did and apply it to other diseases, do you see that happening?
0: Absolutely. I think there are so many opportunities, especially when you think about the data elements of things. In diabetes, we were quote unquote lucky because we have the data from the continuous glucose monitor. We have a drug, insulin, that we are very precisely dosing numerically. And it's very easy to have an algorithm and do learning and data analysis based on those data elements. But There's other diseases and other conditions where you can apply the same concept of what can you track? What can you measure? What can you then turn into a variable that you can analyze or use as a feedback loop into the system? And I think if you take the same idea of what are the problems, what are small solutions or small improvements, and recognize those add up really quickly. So it may not be a cure. It may not be a solution that works for absolutely everybody. But if it works for 20% of people with a condition... Don't you think that's worth doing? Don't you think 20% of people deserve an improvement in their quality of life? And so if you kind of take that mentality, you start to see opportunities in things like cystic fibrosis or cancer or asthma or name a condition. Like there is so much potential out there to take that same approach from diabetes with open source, patient-driven innovation and apply it elsewhere.
1: Do you see patients publishing, doing research, presenting at medical conferences outside of the diabetes community?
0: Oh, absolutely. Liz Salmi in the brain tumor community. There are many people in the palliative care communities. Sarah Agare in the Parkinson's community. I could just go on and on. If you pick a community, there are patients doing research, publishing, innovating. And I think one of the big things, again, is recognizing and valuing their expertise and their role. But again, the systems are kind of designed to not intentionally keep us out because it's constantly... What is your medical degree or what, where was your PhD and what was your postdoc and what institution are you at? Some of the requirements in the system around publishing, I have to keep saying, please don't publish my home address on the internet. Every time I publish an article. No no way. That really happens. Well, because it asks you for an address and the only address I have is my home address. And so I have to like put it in, but then every single time check at the proof stage and everything else, don't publish my address on the internet. Or, hey, I'm blocked from the system because I don't have an affiliation. So sometimes, even though OpenAPS is a, a hashtag, it's a movement, but it's not an organization of any kind. But I've started using that as my organizational affiliation just because the system requires it. And it was just easier to type something in or in slash a just to get through the system to be able to submit a paper or submit a poster it's kind of surprising how those little things add up and the same thing with peer review and conference payments and conference acknowledgements and everything else
1: that's crazy i think wow that i think we have to redesign how we do these medical journals then of not putting these requirements on because that i think that must be incredibly frustrating for you Who's published so much that you have to go through these like checklists that don't apply to you?
0: Yeah, I think it's just, it shows that, not to pick on journals in particular, but it just shows that healthcare is designed to be top down from mm-hmm. the healthcare systems. Patients receive care, were perceived to be passive recipients of care and passive recipients of knowledge. And so this concept that patients are creating and generating knowledge that should be translated to different audiences, including healthcare providers, it's just a very different mindset. And there's so many systems, whether it's journals, conferences, engaging with academic institutions, where the systems just aren't designed for that type of patient involvement. And so one request I have is for people who are looking to work with patients is recognize that there's tons of these nitty gritty, what seem like small things, but over time, it's just another set of hoops for people to jump through to participate at the level that we all want patients to participate at. So if there's anything that you can do to change a system at your institution or a journal that you're editing or on a committee for, take a look because it sounds small, but it's it does get annoying over time and it, it wastes time too.
1: Yeah, a th- thousand percent. And I imagine too, some of the conference fees for these medical conferences, because they're extraordinarily high because most Physicians and researchers have like CME credit that they can use, but then it becomes prohibitive to many people out there who can't afford to pay $1,000 again to a conference.
0: Yeah, and that definitely is prohibitive. Some people have been really great partners and said, let me pay for you to go to the conference. Or I've seen people when they're co-authoring with patients, obviously they would pay for the patient's attendance fee or the poster printing costs and things like that. And that is absolutely wonderful. But systemically, I think all healthcare conferences should have a patient program that is very low fee or no fee, or look at a scholarship advocacy program, something recognizing that their attendees would benefit from the knowledge and the co-attendance of patients and people with lived experiences. But again, they're not traditionally designed for that. So that's another area where we need work.
1: Total need for a redesign in that. Let's talk about the open source artificial pancreas movement, I thought it was an o- organization, but it's not. Like what, what is open APS for those who have not heard about it?
0: So OpenAPS stands for the open source artificial pancreas system. And it's the open source version of what I built for myself and we made open source. And so we knew very early on, we did not want to commercialize this. This was really about solving a problem for me recognizing other people might have the same problem. And while we waited for commercial systems to come to market, if you wanted to, to be able to choose to do this yourself. And so that's really what it was about. And it was really about, let's make this technology available open source that people who need it can choose it. And still worldwide today, there's some commercial systems now out, which is great, but they're not available in every country. In some countries, the cost of the basic supplies, for example, the continuous glucose monitor itself, which is a component of the system, is cost prohibitive and people are paying out of pocket for it so in some cases, open source is the only option. In other cases, it's maybe the more affordable option or it's a more effective option. So there's a bunch of different reasons why people would choose it. But because we're individuals, we're not a company, we're not marketing anything, we're not selling anything. That's one of the reasons why we didn't incorporate into an organization because we wanted to make it very clear that this is a group of individuals, co-solving problems, sharing the knowledge freely, and what people do with it is up to them. And we also used a very specific license for the code and everything that we did that made it possible for individuals to use it themselves, researchers to use it, but also companies. If they wanted to take it and there were ideas in what we were doing, to use it. And to their credit, there's been one or two companies that have analyzed our code, found it outperformed theirs in certain scenarios. And so they added our ideas into their system. And so in one particular system, the CEO says that 20% of the time, our safety code is basically driving the insulin dosing decisions in this commercial system. And I think that's fantastic.
1: That is amazing. how does that make you all feel?
0: It gives me chills every time I think about it because the reason I did this is because insulin dosing is hard and it is inherently unsafe. It's so easy to do everything right and still get bad outcomes or to make a mistake and get bad outcomes. And so automated insulin delivery, although yes, automation and adding components add some risk, the net risk reduction From removing humans from the decisions that are being made on a daily basis is significant. And these systems were designed to be safe because I, as the person with diabetes, care more than anybody else on the planet about my safety. So this system was designed to be safe. And all of these weird edge case scenarios that happen in real life with regards to things, a CGM sensor falling off or the signal being blocked from one component, it's designed for that. And so for a company to say, wow, your safety rules are a great way to check against our machine learning algorithm that we developed commercially. To me, it's just really a good validation of, yes, the safety engineering we have done, have used for years, is effective. And it's just, it's great to see that in use.
1: And it's probably because you all are experts in your own life. And you have to deal with this on a daily basis. And it is exhausting. It's like a second uh, full-time job. Exactly. I forget to eat sometimes and I would have a very difficult time trying to dose uh, by insulin, trying to figure out what my blood sugar is. I get a little taste of it from my producer, Rob Paglisi, who shares that he has insulin pen diabetes. And, And then sometimes I go, Rob, did you eat lunch yet? And it's 4 p.m. It's like, no, no, I forgot. <laughs> and things go a little bit haywire with their sugar. And it is a full-time job to, to do this.
0: That's exactly why automating it in the background so that no matter what you as a human do, you eat, you don't eat, depending on what you eat, when you eat, where you eat, like exercise. It cleans up so much of the noise in terms of the variability and the outcomes of your blood glucose level. And it makes it really easy to see the correlation with different activities. Oh, when I don't eat lunch until 4 p.m., I typically get this outcome. And because so much of the work is taken care of, it becomes easier for the human to adjust their behaviors over time instead of like when you're diagnosed. It feels like you're hit with 100 things you have to do perfectly and you still might not get great outcomes because of the timing and challenges of, of exogenous insulin. So it's really great to have technology that cleans up so much of that mess and allows you to make it less than a second full-time job. And it's just a part-time job to keep the system going.
1: There are some crazy price gouges with diabetes. So the insulin prices have, have surged over the past few years. And I, I don't understand why that is. And then I see literally a couple of miles from my house. I saw a sign that says glucose strips for sale. Call this number. What is going on with that?
0: I always think it's unfair to ask individuals living with diabetes why the system is broken, because I don't think we played a role in creating the system that we're just dealing with.
1: Oh, I'm fully blaming the medical community. (laughs) I know. It's just...
0: A little unfair to be like yeah. why is it broken and when we meet individuals get asked it's kind of frustrating but you know given that i'm on this podcast to talk about diabetes i do happen to have things to say about it i think it's important for people to recognize that insulin in the us is priced differently than elsewhere and it's not just insulin that we need we need syringes or insulin pump supplies the insulin pump itself blood glucose test strips continuous glucose monitor These things that I need to make diabetes less than a second full-time job cost money. They cost thousands of dollars, even with good private company insurance. And in different countries, there are different costs and challenges to accessing these supplies. And in fact, unfortunately, in many countries around the world, there's not available insulin. So we have an issue with pricing of insulin in the United States, but we also have an issue worldwide in terms of just getting insulin into certain countries, especially when there's all kinds of things happening in those countries. And so one of the things that I've done to address this is I cannot solve all problems in diabetes, but what we cause near and dear to my heart is Life for a Child. It's an organization that works to provide insulin test strips and education into different countries around the world, and they support tens of thousands of kids living with diabetes who otherwise would die because mm-hmm. they cannot get insulin in their country otherwise. And so I think it's really important to address the pricing issues, but also look at the total cost of diabetes and diabetes supplies, and also look at global access and equity because while we are pushing for the latest and greatest technology, and hopefully that will ultimately lower price, improve outcomes, improve access because it's a lower cost option, we still have to make sure that people can afford and access the basics like insulin, because some of us take that for granted in the U.S. And we absolutely can't because worldwide, it's not something you can take for granted.
1: Life for a Child. Is there a website? Lifeforchild.org. Oh, that's simple. Lifeforchild.org. I'm sure you can just go onto that website and support them if you're interested in that. that sounds like a great organization. We had a guest on recently, Dr. Josh Liao, and he talked about redesigning payment, because if we can't redesign the payment system, we can never reach equity. And it sounds like this, the pricing of insulin and strips needs to be redesigned, how that's paid for in this country and, and worldwide. I have a lot of these conversations with Mike Natter, who's an endocrinologist in, in mm-hmm. New York City. also he himself has uh, insulin diabetes diabetes, a good friend of mine. And we're always enraged in, in by what's going on, because it seems like this is a simple thing, but they're so complex, the layers of, of why this is happening. And it's already hard to, to live with diabetes and then to put on these other constraints with pricing and figuring out, um, to get insulin, to get strips and I see this in my patients. A lot who come to the emergency department where patients who have unstable housing, that they lose their insulin all the time or they don't have a safe spot to store their insulin and they come in with high blood sugars.
0: Yeah, and things can happen. Like you can drop a vial and it can break. And if that was your insulin for the rest of the month and you're two weeks out, it can be even very hard to work the system to get a hold of your doctor. If you have a regular doctor to get a prescription and go and fill it and pay for it again due to a really small mistake, like maybe your cat knocked it off the table, but all of a sudden you need to go and buy Eight hundred dollars more of insulin to get you through the last two weeks of the month, and that can be devastating to a lot of people. And it's you know no system is perfect, so it's not necessarily the answer to just change the the healthcare system and insurance options in the U.S. Countries in like UK and the Europe. I have friends over there, and they have different challenges. Like insulin is affordable and it's covered, but many of them are paying out of pocket for continuous glucose monitors completely, and it's very cost prohibitive. So with diabetes, there's not really a simple systemic answer. And I do think it's easy to feel overwhelmed and want to rage at the system. But what I personally do when I start to get overwhelmed, when we we have a conversation like this where I remember, here's all the problems and I can't solve all of them alone. But what I can do is think about effective ways to support people living with diabetes through Life for a Child, for example. Very cost-effective way to donate and get test supplies, education, insulin to kids in third world countries um, or low and middle income countries that otherwise can't access it. So whenever I get overwhelmed by something in healthcare, whether it's, you know, talking about insulin or access or diabetes supplies or a completely different topic, I try to like, bring my focus back in. Of Okay, I cannot fix everything, but what's one thing that I can do right now or put on my list for this week to, you know, make an effort where I can and make a change where I can. And over time, those changes will add up even at the individual level.
1: In addition to your busy life, you are an author. You you wrote several books and even a series of children's books. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I decided to write a book. The first one was actually a children's book because I live across the country from my niece. And when she would see me, she would ask questions about my pump and my CGM. And I wanted to normalize wearing pump and CGM and having something that kind of normalized diabetes for her because she she was born and has grown up only knowing Aunt Dana with diabetes. I wrote the first book kind of fictionalizing a a conversation we had where she legitimately asked about my pump and my CGM and I explained it to her and talked about how different people are different from you know diabetes to people with hearing aids or peacemakers or people who use crutches or other mobility devices and it was a really enjoyable experience and I learned how to news, self-publishing technology to physically bring that book into the world, and so a couple years later, you know, I had been publishing research articles, I had been blogging for years, and giving presentations. That I really wanted one piece of content that I could give to people to say, if you want to learn about automated insulin delivery and everything that we've learned in the community, here's one thing. And so I ended up writing a book and self-publishing it through Amazon. It's available free online. If you want to read it, you can go to ArtificialPancreasBook.com. Read it for free online. There's a PDF you can download read for free, but you can also get it on Kindle or a print book or coming soon, a hardback book through Amazon. And it really talks about what is automated insulin delivery, how it might benefit people with insulin requiring diabetes, how to learn how to use it, how to optimize it, whether it's open source or commercial. And it really was trying to serve that goal of we have so much knowledge out there, but if it's scattered through social media, it's really hard for people to luck into finding it or for healthcare providers to feel like they can point to it. And so having it some of it consolidated in a book I found was a really effective way to initiate more of those conversations across those different audiences.
1: And there wasn't a book like that before?
0: There was no book and there still is no other book about automated insulin delivery. And that a lot seems of my- That
1: crazy. Why?
0: Well, it's new, right? I did automated insulin delivery open source in 2014 and it took several years before the first commercial system was available. And I just don't, it's so new. People were still figuring out how do patients use it? How do providers use it? And so in the open source community, we typically are a couple of years ahead of answering key questions like, how does it work? Can we do it? How is it effective? What is the most optimal algorithm and feature set? And doing, we did research years before everybody else. And so it was kind of, I just saw the opportunity to capture knowledge, put it out, and I'm excited for the future when I will get to say it was the first, but no longer the only book that addresses automated insulin delivery. So hopefully other people will write additional resource guides and everything else that will help fill in more of the knowledge gap.
1: And you also, where where are your children's books? Can people find that online as well?
0: Yes. They are linked from artificialpancreasbook.com because there's a kid's book about automated insulin delivery. And there's also a free animated video with verbal and captions that kind of illustrate an analogy of scuba dieting with automating insulin delivery. And then they're all available for print on Amazon. So if you look up Dana Lewis or Dana Lewis Diabetes in Amazon, you should find all the books.
1: That's so cool. I, I'm just fascinated to know what is it about you that led you to be this champion in open source APS and to, and to do this? Because it requires a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of, I would say, creativity. And were you always a tinkerer growing up? Did you make stuff all the time? Just fascinated by this.
0: I think some of it had to do with the fact that my dad was an engineer. I have two older brothers and I was gender-wise treated the same as my brothers. And I was also very competitive with my older brothers, still am. And so I wanted to do what they did. So if they were doing a Boy Scout project, I was along doing the projects with them and, and wanting to build and solve problems. And that was just something that my family did. Is like, oh, we've got a problem. Let's solve it. Maybe it's with duct tape. Maybe it's with, you know, this reverse engineered solution. And so that was kind of a mentality I grew up with. And then I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 14. And I had kind of a pivotal moment. About six to eight months later, because for the first couple of months, I was very concerned with the stigma that I saw people with diabetes, regardless of the type of diabetes, were treated. And I grew up and was diagnosed in Alabama, where there is a lot of type 2 diabetes and unfortunately, a lot of complications, things like amputations and everything else that thankfully are getting better with better diabetes treatment modalities. But when I was diagnosed in the early 2000s, that was the visual I had as a teenager of what diabetes looked like. And I saw how people were kind of treated badly. And so I didn't want people for a while to know that I had diabetes because I didn't want to be treated differently. Mm. And it really took a couple of months before I decided that having an insulin pump would be worth the risk of the, the stigma of people visually seeing that I had diabetes to get the benefits of having an insulin pump versus having to wake up early on the weekends to eat and dose insulin. And around the same time, I really realized that I had kind of just been doing what I needed to do to take care of myself, but it didn't really make me feel any better emotionally and psychologically. And I had an opportunity to volunteer with the American Diabetes Association, and it made me feel better to do something and volunteer. And I kind of had the light bulb go off that doing something for somebody else was better than anything that I would do for myself. And that kind of became my mantra in terms of why I did advocacy with type 1 diabetes starting as a teenager and everything that I've done has kind of been, if it works for me, it will probably work even better or solve more problems for somebody else. And so anything that I do for myself, I want to turn around and communicate it or make it open source and make it possible for other people to leverage it because it probably solves somebody else's problem too. Hmm. And with OpenAPS, we always said, we don't expect everybody to use this. We don't expect many people to use it at the time. But if one other person could benefit and would go to sleep feeling safer while living with insulin requiring diabetes, it's worth the effort to make it open source. And so the second person did it and it was absolutely worth it. And each subsequent person, there's now thousands of people using open source automated insulin delivery. And it just feels wonderful and way better than had I just done something and, you know, kind of kept the secret to myself and just back to my teenage years with diabetes, like that just didn't work for me. And so sharing knowledge and sharing information is also a way that I support myself and the challenges of living with diabetes. Mm.
1: I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we reduce the stigma of living with a chronic disease in the medical community. Uh, One way we, I feel we propagate this is by calling people by their diseases. You're not a patient with diabetes, but you're diabetic. Uh, we do this with the sickle cell population. We call them, you know, you're the, the sickle celler in room five instead of the patient with sickle cell disease. How do we normalize this? Because it's, it's a crazy system where, or in our, in these communities, we identify people by their disease, which is totally crazy.
0: Yes. And unfortunately, diabetes is one of the more common ones where you hear people referred to as diabetic. And so since you asked this question, you probably weren't surprised when you emailed me about this podcast. And my one request was, please don't use or say diabetic because that is something that people commonly fall into is describing me as a diabetic. I'm a person living with diabetes. And there are some people who prefer that term. And similarly, within the autism community, there are people who prefer to identify as autistic. And people who prefer to identify as somebody with living with autism. And I think what's important is to respect individual preferences, which really emphasizes we have to treat people as individuals, meet them where they are, see them as an individual, see me as, you know, somebody who runs and likes to write books and has two cats that she posts lots of pictures about on the internet. And, oh yeah, I have type one diabetes and an automated insulin delivery system. But my primary identity, including in the healthcare system, like my body and my health is way more complex than the fact that I have to inject insulin into my body every day. And so there's no one answer to stigma, but I think thinking about the language we use to talk about people verbally and also thinking about it in the written literature. Um, As a peer reviewer of academic literature, I oftentimes am commenting back to authors saying, consider using phrases like people with diabetes instead of diabetic or giving them suggestions to less stigmatizing language in diabetes, there are phrases like, quote unquote, poorly controlled diabetes that is stigmatizing. And it's also confusing because is that researcher or author referring to that self-management behaviors that they want a person to be performing are not being performed? Or are they referring to the glycemic outcomes and the time and target range? And so the one thing that I've done recently is try to emphasize to people that the language matters that we talk about people and it, because it reduces stigma. It reduces harm in terms of future care for people, and it also makes for better science. And so if nothing else, if people can think about removing the stigmatizing language as a way to improve science and understand the ability of their work, I think we'll get a lot farther. But I think we all have to chip in on that effort.
1: It's something I try to do every time I write a note in the electronic health record because the EHR doctor notes are full of stigmatizing language. The non-compliant patient shows up all the time. And I, I hate that. And I have to catch myself too, because I have grown up in this system that propagates a lot of the stigmatizing language. I had to unlearn a lot of that. And I continually do and have to check my biases a lot of around language, but it's important. And I, I think a lot of us physicians think, oh, well, it's just easier to write it this way but if we do, what is, how is that changing the way I perceive patients? And, and their- how
0: does that change the relationship with a patient who has access to the visit notes now that yes. can actually further damage a relationship that might already be weakened for a reason that you're not aware about? And it could result in the patient choosing not to seek treatment. As early as they could. And so this is what I want people to understand is that the language matters in terms of the results in healthcare, in terms of people's willingness and ability to access healthcare when they need it. This is all a result of that. And one of the best things that I've seen that I think really starts to help do this is when anybody, whether it's me, I don't always make the best choices. Again, you grow up with phrases that just kind of come out, is when somebody calls you out on it or says, hey, did you mean X or please don't say that because that's hurtful to me or my community to say, stop and say, thank you for the correction, correct it, move on and try to remember that and correct in future, but taking those corrections with grace. And I recently saw a tweet from somebody who made essentially a diabetes joke related to food, which is very common in social media, but it was from a healthcare provider. And I follow them, they follow me. And My policy sometimes has been to unfollow people who do that repeatedly. But I was like, you know what? I know him enough to know that was an off-the-cuff comment. Let me say something to him and and see what the result is. And I said, you know, you might want to rethink that second tweet in your thread about this joke about what you were eating and it being related to diabetes. And his instant response was, you're right. I'm deleting the tweet. I shouldn't have done that. And he didn't have to say all of that. He could have just deleted the tweet or reposted it. But his grace and his quickness to say, you're right. You caught, like you caught me saying something I know that that's not ideal and then to follow up to say like I respect you and I respect your work, you know, please don't see that as a sign of disrespect because that wasn't the intent. And I knew it wasn't the intent. But I still think about this weeks later because he was so receiving of that kind of hey, please stop and think about that with grace. And so I try to think about how can I comment to people in a way that allows them to gracefully receive that, because I think it takes kind of that grace and kindness on both sides. But I think the more we do that and the more we model it, especially in public, the easier it will be to make it normal to say, oops, sorry, mistake. Let me change that. Moving on. And it not be a personal attack or a big emotional thing, but just be, oh, thank you for catching that. Fixed. Move on.
1: I love asking my guests this question, how might we design a healthier life?
0: I think it depends on your definition of health in the first place, in order to then what is healthier. And I think when you ask somebody who is not somebody who perceives themselves to be a patient and somebody who's not really accessed healthcare other than one off appointments for things like flu or whatever, that there's a perception that people with chronic diseases aren't healthy. And that is wrong. People with chronic diseases can be healthy. And like everybody else, our optimizations for healthier might look the same in terms of good sleep, better diet, staying hydrated, making sure to be active, or it could be different in terms of optimizing something specific to our chronic disease. But that's a very broad question because everybody's definition of health and healthier are different. And so I kind of throw this question back to you to say, what's your baseline definition of health and for who? And therefore then how do you optimize that further to be designing for a healthier life? I think everybody's answer would be different and I can give you mine, but I'd love to know yours first. Yeah,
1: well, I think of it from, uh, there's a couple of ways I think of it. One personally for me, which is going to be so different from you or anyone else versus what I think about a healthier life for my community. And I live in a couple of different communities. So one is Philadelphia. I think of my community and how can we design our city to be healthier When I think of the U S of how can we design a healthier public health system? When I think about the world, the pandemic of how can we create a healthier life around vaccine equity right now, currently where the global South is not getting the vaccines that they need. And while here many of us have gotten our full dose and are getting our boosters and kids are getting the vaccine. So yes. I 1000% agree with you. It depends upon which, uh, community that you're looking at or your, yourself. So, so I love when, um, getting the diversity of answers, but for me personally, I think during the pandemic, what I valued was sleeping more, which I realized I didn't do too much because I traveled a lot before the pandemic and i enjoy sleep and i sometimes i sleep seven eight hours and then i feel guilty about sleeping that much and i'm like why do i feel guilty for sleeping a normal what normal human should sleep and i tell my patients to sleep more but when i get that much sleep i go man i I should have gotten up earlier to do work and i was like that's so wrong and so i've learned to be okay with myself and to enjoy sleep and to prioritize it and also because i've been traveling to prioritize being more active on a daily basis and to schedule that in my design hierarchy of choices before anything else of like i'm going to prioritize either going biking or going surfing and a 10-minute workout and make sure i prioritize that day in my design hierarchy of of choices so for me personally, that's what I think of designing a healthier life. And for the city of Philadelphia, with my research group, a health design lab at my university, we took on this challenge of, of testing and COVID vaccine distribution. Cause we thought there, there was Wonderful. a big gap there in the city of Philadelphia of communities, especially black and brown communities, not having access to testing and vaccines. So we were like, Hey, we're going to focus our efforts and time during the pandemic to do that. so a lot of our other. Projects like our 3D printing research kind of got put on the back burner for a few months because we were applying for RFPs to their city. So, mm-hmm. those are my perspectives of designing a healthier life. But thanks for asking me. No one ever asked me that question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think your answers just show how individual health is. And I was laughing when you were talking about sleep because sleep is an example I use for other people because they maybe don't relate to the tasks I have to do with type 1 diabetes. And honestly, with automated insulin delivery, diabetes is way down on my list of concerns. I would rather cure celiac disease or other things above type 1 diabetes for me personally because I've addressed so many of those other challenges. And there's more fundamental things like sleep that more greatly influence my health personally. But as an example of how different, I have always been a really good, really deep sleeper. And in fact, I got into open source diabetes work to solve a problem, which was that I slept so hard, I didn't hear my continuous glucose monitor alarms. And I thought if I could get my data off the physical device, which the company didn't design for, that I could send it to my phone and make a different, louder alarm and change it and get it to wake me up because I sleep really hard and really deep and really long. For me, eight hours is under my average threshold and I feel physically bad if I, sleep regularly only eight hours. Like I need nine and a half to 10 hours, which is very different than most people, but I've learned that matters. And so I also prioritize getting really good enough sleep for me. And then I find that I could do way more in the day, waking up to do more work backfires. So I think, it's, I think it's really individualistic. And so I think whenever we're talking about communities or looking at groups, whether it's a geographic community or a disease community is recognizing that there's so many different individual differences in each individual. And so if we're going to design systemic solutions, we still need to have flexibility and represent there's not truly one size fits all. And it comes back to something I said earlier when I was talking about if you design a solution and you know it works for you, and it might work for 10%, 40%, but not 100% of a community or sub-community, a lot of times healthcare tries to shut that down or say it won't work or we shouldn't do that because it doesn't work for everybody. And I think we're missing a lot of solutions that could work for some people. And so I think we should do a better job of saying yes and let's start with what works for 20 to 40% of people and continue to work to find the solutions for the other 60% within that subgroup. And possibly we can improve upon the solution starting with 40% and work our way up or come up with ideas for alternative solutions for the people whose needs haven't been met. But again, saying, hey, you 40%, you just get to, you should just suffer right? Because nobody else has a solution. And I think people in that 60% group would say, I don't want them to suffer. If they have something that works for them, they should absolutely have it, get access to it, everything else. Like we're not saying everybody should suffer because we're suffering. And that's, patients always say that. They're like, people shouldn't suffer. That's why we're advocating and trying to improve the system because we don't want people to suffer or experience bad experiences in healthcare the way we have. And so I think we've really got to rethink the way that the healthcare system individuals, organizations, the infrastructure, the rules, the policies respond to things like that, because I think we are literally shutting down a lot of great ideas.
1: A thousand percent. There's so much that you put in my brain. I have so many thoughts whirling around. I'm going to think a lot about our conversation. So really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Rob and I are such huge fan of yours. So it's a true honor to have you. Thank thank you, Dana Lewis, for coming on Design Lab.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me and thanks to everybody for listening.
1: You can find Dana Lewis on Twitter at D-A-N-A-M-L-E-W-I-S and reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. My Twitter handle is at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram, I'm at... D R B O N K U. Remember, rate us on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Lugisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.